Welcome to Connecting with Coincidence with psychiatrist Bernard David Beitman, MD. Dr. Beitman is the founder of the Coincidence Project. The project encourages people like you to tell each other coincidence stories. To learn more about Dr. Beitman's work, put Connecting with Coincidence in your web browser. You'll find his book, his Psychology Today blog, and the interviews from this podcast. And now your host, Bernard Beitman, MD. Welcome to Connecting with Coincidence. I am your host, Dr. Bernie Beitman, MD. This is CC with BB 2.0. If you wish to support us here at Connecting with Coincidence, please like and subscribe. Increasing subscriber numbers increases our reach. And those of you who watch us on YouTube, write us one of your coincidence stories in the comments section. We will reply. I went to the gym the other day, and um, one of the people behind the desk uh, has found me fun to talk with, and I think she's fun to talk with. So we were getting into some stuff, and then one day I asked her if she noticed coincidences. She said, there are no coincidences. The number 13 turns up when I need a message from my father who died. They happen all the time, but a lot of people don't notice them. They can help bring compassion and understanding to relationships. I thought to myself, that's my message. That's my message. So I gulped a coincidence prophet at the gym. I pushed these words out of my chest right on. <laughs> Thank you, she said. Well, our guest today is Buddy Helm. And Buddy has played drums with old notables like Chuck Berry, Bo Diddley, Tim Buckley, Mike Bloomfield, Big Joe Turner, and many others. He wrote the Star Wars syndicated comic strips for George Lucas. He developed a stress-reducing helm tone protocols and taught in Kathy Javier's ethnic gift shop called Seasons in Santa Monica, California. He toured the US, Australia, and Japan. His books include Drumming the Spirit to Life, Let the Goddess Dance, Way of the Drum, History of the Groove, and he was a drone therapist on the staff at Bridges to Recovery for six years. Buddy, welcome to the show. Thank you, Doc. It's nice to be here. <laughs> it's great to have you. And, you know, we were talking a little bit before the sh before we got on to this uh, recording about your history and how you and I have some overlap uh, in, in the Bay Area and other places uh, musically. It's really been fun to compare those notes. Uh, but there's a story about Tim Buckley uh, that um, I'd like you to tell because it's such a illustrative thing, such an illustrious story about how a coincidence can form a synchronicity that meaningfully changed your life. Quite a bit, yeah. Quite a bit. So <clears throat> tell, us, tell us the story of uh, Tim Buckley the boss and uh, that denim vat jacket. Yeah, well, I was uh, a very successful drummer in the 70s. 
and I work with Tim Buckley and a lot of other people. But with Tim, we actually played in Max's Kansas City in New York quite a bit. And I, there was this new kid named Bruce, and he hung down front, you know, didn't pay much attention to him. So years passed, Tim Buckley was killed in 75, and it hit me very hard because I'd lost my father when I was four, and, and so I was struggling with depression. I was avoiding the drugs and the alcohol, but it was slowing me down quite a bit. So, um, and I continued to work in the music business until I said, okay, enough's enough. I put on a suit and a tie, and I became Russell Buddy Helm, and I worked in Lorimar, Dallas, Falcon Crest, Knott's Landing, those were my shows, and I worked at the Playboy Channel, and I worked for George Lucas and a lot of other people. So I was clawing my way up through the corporate entertainment world, and I got a call from Tim Buckley's widow, and it had been over 10 years, and she said they were not getting any royalties from Tim's recordings, and uh, since I was no longer a drummer, which hurt quite a bit. She said, in your suit now, can you negotiate a deal with Warner Brothers? And I said, as a matter of fact, I can, because I knew the vice president of film at Warner's, Lucy Fisher, and, and I'd, I'd work with her partner, Peter Ivers, who was also killed uh, in the underground world of, of Los Angeles music. He had New Wave Theater on and on. So I said, yeah, I understand your problem, and I can do that. So I girded my loins and put on my... Barney's raw white silk suit and I drove over to Burbank and uh, in my 66 Mercury Park Lane and parked in the visitor's parking space and uh, I walked down the hallway to the board meeting and I could see those seven music lawyers from Warner Brothers like sharks circling they they didn't want they didn't want to share me they were going to tear me apart and just leave me for dead and I'm walking in the room, the doors open in uh, the sound mixing room and Bruce Springsteen is in the, in the sound room. By now, of course, he's the boss, you know, and the engineer. And he looks at me, he goes, Max is Kansas City, New York, 1973. You were Tim Buckley's drummer. And I was like, I was in, in the middle of having a huge psychic break, you know, because am I a film executive or am I a drummer? And back then, if you were a drummer, you were not welcome in the film business. How you know, come? How come? Because you were undependable. You were a flake. You were a freak. You know, you. This was before drumming as a therapeutic event. It was actually the precursor for what we have now. So he looks at me. He says, "Wait a minute. You're here for that meeting with the lawyers because he he was a big Tim Buckley fan." And he would, I just say it back, he was sitting in the audience while you were drumming for Tim Buckley. Exactly. Little, little Bruce in the front row. Yeah, yeah. That was upstairs at Max's Kansas City, which held about 75 people. You know, it was and, a tiny and did you kind of recognize him? Or did, oh, how did you know he was there? I, they told me later oh, he, that oh, he, he told was you there. later. Okay. Yeah, I, I didn't okay. know. It makes no. a good story. That Okay, I got it. He told you later, yeah. but he, you you found out he was there, but he was there watching you drum uh, for, for Buckley. So that's... Yeah, that's, yeah. Okay. And so we were on tour with Tim, and we were in Houston, and the, the interviewer said, what about this new guy, you know, Bruce Springsteen? And Tim Buckley said, you mean the guy that's trying to imitate me? <laughs> <laughs> so that was all that, you know. <laughs> So here we are, 
This is in the early 80s. And I'm standing in sort of shock, you know, psychic disorientation. Am I a drummer or am I a suit? He hands me his denim jacket, the cutoff jacket that the boss was always wearing. It's sitting on the back of his chair. And he hands it to me. And it's funky, you know. And he said, you know, go get him. So I'm walking down the hallway, and it's like a Roman Polanski movie. The, the hall's narrowing, you know, and I'm having tunnel vision, and I don't know who I'm supposed to be. And I get to the door of the off the boardroom, and the lawyers are just sneering at me. And, and I put his jacket on over my Barney's raw white silk suit. And they go, ah, groans from these guys. And I walk in, and now... For the first time, I am both people. I'm the, I'm the executive. I'm the drummer. That really never happened before for me. I, I, they were separate, you know, schizophrenic identities, different names. I walked around in the front of the boardroom, and I said, you know this belongs to? And they go, yeah, we know what it belongs to. And I said, okay, without this guy, Tim Buckley, who you don't even think is important, you wouldn't have the boss. You wouldn't have Chrissy Hine. There's a lot of people he influenced and you owe they said it's not enough money for you to worry about and I said nope it's not about the money you owe the widow and you owe the orphan you owe me but we're not going to go there okay you need to take care of these people you got the money so they you know complained and we kind of hashed it out a little bit we got up something and then I received the bootleg recordings that, that we had done in 1973 and 74. You and Tim. Yeah. With, yeah. with the band, he had the, the Tim Buckley band and, and we'd done ne the Nebworth UK festival with the Allman brothers who were my old pals and Van Morrison and, and, uh, the Doobie brothers, you know, oh, and wow, was, wow, wow. you know, and, uh, it's tremendous tour, you yeah, know, yeah, it was yeah, like yeah. top drawer. And I'm listening to myself playing the drums on these recordings. And I feel both terrible, melancholy, and euphoric because it's brilliant. I'm on fire. I'm like 22 years old and I'm just playing my, my head off, you know? So I'm listening to this stuff back in my office at Lorimar. And I said, I, I can't do this. I can't sit in this office. So, uh, the Lee Rich was the president. He sent down his secretary, you know, Latin woman. She says, there's rumor now that you're leaving and you're going to get your vice president office next week. And why are you leaving? I said, it's got something to do with me being a drummer. And I had not played the drums in 10 years. She said, drummer, what kind of drummer? I said, well, whatever you need. She said, conguero. Because she was a Latin woman. I said, see, si, vivo in Miami. <laughs> she said, oh, we must dance. And I went, I, I appreciate that, you know, but I got to get out of here. So that was this huge turning point for me. And that's when I met Kathy. And she had this store, ethnic gift store on Montana Avenue in Santa Monica. And I didn't know what I was going to do. So uh, she said, if you don't know what to do, Try being of service. Because that was like an alien concept to me. So she said, do you want to go to Bali? I went, sure. So we went to Bali 
and we're looking for you know ethnic pieces for her little store on Montana Avenue. It's called Seasons. And uh, she's negotiating best price, best Kathy price. And I see a drum that's under the counter. I pull it out and I I give her the ancient bargaining rhythm. It's uh, It goes all the way back to the Crusades. And he flips and he goes, you are a drummer. And I went, no, I don't do that anymore. Okay. Dead rock stars, corrupt record companies. You know, thieving managers, no. And it was all this bitterness came out. And he goes, he gives me the namaste. It's a little Indonesian guy. He goes, you are a drummer now. Uh, I'm not going to buy it. I am not going there. And he says, then play now. He backed me into a corner. Psychologically, I had no alternative. I couldn't. We took two drums outside of his little shop in the jungle in Bali, and he called up a kid who had never, you know, couldn't speak English, and both of us sat down on the drums, and I said, show me what you got, man. So he takes off on Indonesian rhythms that are, like, so sophisticated, I couldn't figure them out. I said, no, 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 that's too much work. I'm not going to go there. I'll show you what we do down south. I'm going to give you the downbeat, and you fill it in. And he got it. Couldn't speak English, but he understood rhythm. So this moment for me was, uh, you know, the result of all this suffering and confusion and distraction. And Bruce was a part of it. And Tim's widow. They were all contributing this energy to get me to do what I've been doing now for the last 34 years, which is showing people how to heal using rhythm and how to connect to the manifesting energy that's in the rhythm. All cultures have used it. In America, we mistrusted it because it was so powerful, we didn't understand it. But this guy that was running this shop in Bali, he goes back into the shop and he comes out with a wooden carved monkey mask with great you know, reverence. He says his grandfather had carved this wooden monkey mask. And he puts it on, and he starts to dance. So this kid and I, we're playing and just grooving, pretty much like this. And this guy starts to move in those graceful Balinese, you know. It's like just serpentine, just incredibly beautiful. I said, Kathy, get a picture. She says, I am, I am. <laughs> so I'm watching him dance, and I suddenly realize that I feel really good. I haven't felt this good in a long time. And I'm looking up the sky, and the sky is blue. And the leaves are green, vivid, and the sharp edges on everything. It was just, it was like the universe had taken the focus knob on my life and just turned it and brought everything into focus. And I realized this is what I was supposed to be doing. I and feel good. I feel good. <laughs> so good. I, I feel so good. I feel, hey, I think I want to feel this way some more. <laughs> and so we we took, you know, what Kathy had purchased there and the drums and everything, and we drove around Bali. We we'd got a jeep, and we this was thirty four. Was it thirty four years ago? Yeah, like ninety seven. So it was still old Bali. 
and we went to different places. Is this the famous Kathy? Yeah. Hey, yeah, Steph, she's, come on, come on on here. Let the, let everybody see who he's talking about. Hey, thanks. So you're the one who said, "Hey, you want to go to Bali?" <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, that's what we call. Who wouldn't? Yeah. <laughs> well, some people wouldn't. That this is about synchronicity that we got here. So that was a transformative invitation you did with Buddy. You tr you helped him transform into who he is now. So thank you. Yeah, thank you. So we went to other little villages, Boog Boog and all these, and they knew us. They knew what we were about. The word had spread, and they came down and they said, Patina, patina. And I went, what do you mean, patina? They said, patina, patina. And they had drums that had been worn smooth with the the robes of the sacred drummers for, you know, maybe a hundred years. And we 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 brought these drums back, and we won't sell them because they they're just full of, of magic. And uh, well, could he play them? No. No. Yeah, the, the heads are, are actually uh, Cobra and snake skin heads. Well, let, let, let's keep it out there anyway, because yeah. what we want to do here, uh, after I do the little summary again, is look, we're looking at synchronicity uh, on the show. And the two focal points I hear are uh, second, Kathy, hey, want to go to Bali? <laughs> <laughs> that gets to having to run into the guy at the head with the drums and for that guy to say, Hey buddy, you can play the drums. That's your thing. And he, he said things to you that's meant put the past behind you be right now, be the drummer. You are right now. Forget about what's past. And then he brings the kid in and you two are talking to each other. And you, he's too fast for you, so he's got to go with where you are. And you start moving it in the monkey face, and he starts dancing. But the, the critical steps there are Kathy, Bali, walking into that shop, and then doing what you did was the, the old-time negotiating drum beat. Show this. Do that for us. This is a six beat. One, two, three, four, five, six. One, two, three, four, five, six. Now, as it slows, it's traditional African, but it's also Irish. Uh, every culture uses it, Far East. But when you slow it down, it becomes the blues. Baby, please don't go. Baby, please don't go. Baby, please, please don't, go. don't go. So, I realized that the rhythms of humans are the same all over the world when you simplify them to these real basic formula rhythms. And in America, it's a four beat and a three beat and pretty much everywhere else. So I decided I could teach that. So when we came back from, from Bali, we had a few drums, but not a lot. And, uh, and a woman comes in and she says, I want a drum, but I don't want to be a drummer. <laughs> and I went, Okay. I said, well, what do you want to do with it? She says, I want to drum with my granddaughter and some of my grandmother friends. This is before drumming phenomenon. This is like th over 30 years ago. I said, well, I can teach you that. It's a low tone in the middle of whatever drum you have, and it's a high note out at the edge. And just set it up as a steady groove. 
and don't speed up because that'll create anxiety. Which is fine if you you know want to generate you know an excuse for the police to shut you down. <laughs> if you want to go for the healing and the meditation and the deeper trance and the connection to the universal life force, you got to stay steady and relaxed. Now, I learned that from Big Joe Turner and Chuck Berry and Bo Diddley and Greg Allman and Dwayne Allman and all the, all the, the great guys in the South who knew this secret of like, when you're playing, you don't want to speed up because you're going to lose them. You're going to lose the people who need to dance. You need to make them feel safe. So that came back to me when, when we started to offer this. And I talked to John Densmore, the drummer for The Doors. He said, your girlfriend's got that shop, that ethnic shop. Can she get really good djembe's from Africa? And I went, I don't know. What's a good djembe? She said, he said, I don't know. So I asked Kathy. She said, yeah, Jumoke is in town from Ghana. Come down with me to the gift show. And I met Jumoke. She's tall, you know, statuesque, beautiful. African woman, good businesswoman. And I said, do you have good djembe's? She said, yes, my family makes them. Ah. Oh, oh, right. Yeah, yeah, we're going to get to that. The, the Bronco. <laughs> I'll go what she wants that. Well, we'll do that too. Um, and we'll get to, she likes the Bronco, we'll do the Bronco. But, <laughs> but th this is, we're going to, let's take Let's take a pause for a commercial break, which is no, which is do the Bronco. That's what we'll do. Because okay. I want to get back to where you're going, which is the, the, the be calm rhythm. Make sure that you're not losing the people. Don't get to the anxiety that if you go too fast can bring on and how that will melt us into how drumming and synchronicity are go together, how you can increase the flow in your life with a drum beat that gets you into the flow. Yeah, yeah. It's, it has to do somehow with alignment. With alignment. Let's leave it with that word and, and do an alignment with a Bronco, and then okay. we'll, get, we'll get to that. Unless Kathy wants to tell the Bronco story because she likes it. Well... Okay, we're fast and reverse, and, and I'm leaving the film business, and I'm in a state of shock. This is before we went to Bali, and I really hadn't met Kathy. Oh, I didn't realize it was. Now, that links the two stories. The Bronco links the two stories yeah. because you can't get away from her is what happened, <laughs> but that's what it was. <laughs> well, <clears throat> through friends, you know, I met her at her birthday party, and uh, so I come into her shop, and I meet her here. And, and I'm telling her about what I did when I tried to break out of the film business, you know, a, about a year earlier. I looked in the classified ads in L.A. Times, and there was a drive-away car to take it back to Manhattan in New York. And, uh, and I called up, and they said, yeah, take the Bronco, and we'll meet you in New York. So... Uh, and it was Brenda Vaccaro, actress. Ah, ah, yeah, yeah, yeah. And she was going to do The Odd Couple. Ah, in New York, and, okay. And, yeah, and, and her boyfriend was from France, Guy, and he was pretty charming, you know, young, and he wanted a car in Manhattan. And I said, you ever had a car in Manhattan? He goes, no. And I said, well, you don't want to do that. You're going to pay money, more money for storing your car 
than your apartment. It's just ridiculous. You don't want to do that. He said, no, no, I really want to have a car in Manhattan. But okay, tell you what. I'm going to take your car, and I'm going to drive it across the United States, and I'm going to stop in Mount Vernon, Illinois, because I finally located one person who actually knew my father. And he's, you know, the, the, the founding father of Mount Vernon, Illinois. And, and so, because my dad was in the intelligence business. And naval intelligence, OSS, World War II, and it was a big secret. I didn't, I loved him, but I didn't know him. So I get in the car and I drive back to Mount Vernon. You, you were four when he died, just to be clear about that. Yeah, yeah, I was four years old. And we were in Pennsylvania. And when he died, everything disappeared. You know, the big house in the country and everything. Just And mom told me later, the men in black, they came around and they said, what did you know? What did he tell you? And she just said, I know nothing. So I'm driving back to Illinois to meet this only person I've ever met, hopefully, that knew my father. I get out of the Bronco, middle of the night. It's funky. You know, I'm sleeping in the car all the way across. He goes, where'd you get so tall? Your dad wasn't, you know, 5'7". I saw my mom's side. They were all Indiana farm boys, basketball players. He says, well, I can't tell you everything because I had to sign that, you know, the the Security Act. But you deserve to know who your father was. So he stayed up all night, and his wife says, Tappy, Tappy Topochik, you're not supposed to talk about those things. He said, look at him. This could be our son. He wants to know who his father was. She said, okay, okay. So she sat down and shared with us. Your father was a wonderful friend. He gave us a truck. We drove out here to Illinois and bought pasture land. We wanted to raise horses. So Tappy was your father's good luck charm. So we didn't know that the interstate highway was going to cross right in the middle of our pasture land. Everybody thought we were crazy for moving out here. So now he owns every building, every business. In Mount Vernon, Illinois, he got to name the city. And he says, are you a drinking man? I went, well, no, little. He says, come on. So we get in the car and we drove. He's got a big roll of keys to every business in Mount Vernon. And he opens up the liquor, you know, warehouse. He says, take whatever you want. And he's, you know, World War II gung-ho kind of guy. And I saw I get a VSOP, you know. He says, good call. We'll drink mine. You just keep that. So... He, all night, he told me stories about my father and, I, you know, stuff I'd never heard. And he says, let's call your mom. Where is she? I said, Florida. So I call her. She says, where are you? And I said, I'm in Mount, Mount Vernon, Illinois at Tappy Chapochik's house. She said, he's got a big mouth. Don't listen to him. And, and Tappy doesn't hear her. He says, let me talk to her. He goes, hi, Winnie, Winifred. How you? And she interrupts him and dresses him down seriously. Loses color in his face. He says, okay. He hangs up the phone. That was it. And so I drove the car the next day. He says, I go to church every morning because I was in the Pacific during World War II. We were torpedoed. The ship was going down. People were dying. And I told God, I said, look, if I get out of this, I'm going to go to church every day for the rest of my life. Okay, that's the deal. And I could see like there were crucifixes in every room. But it wasn't like a Bible thumper. He was just a regular, it was a baker. So 
he comes back the next morning and fixes me breakfast and he sends me off. And I was a different person. I was like, wow. So I'm driving this Bronco and watching the sunrise and, and it's this transformational event. And I get it to, to Manhattan and we're at Sardi's and I'm with Brenda Vaccaro and, and her boyfriend. And they said, uh, oh, look, we don't want the car now in Manhattan because we don't have any place to put it. So where are you? I said, well, I'm going to stay out with my old friend, Charlie, the saxophone player with Hall & Oates. He's out in, 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 the, in the Long Island. And, you know, they said, take the car and then we'll call you if we need it. I said, well, that's too far. It's going to be like two, three hours for me to get into Manhattan. They said, oh. I said, look, you're stuck with the car, okay? I'm out of here. So I you know, said goodbye to Charlie and his wife, and I flew back down to Florida. And then I get a call that says, you got a new job in L.A., film, you know, dialogue replacement stuff, technical. So I come back out to, to L.A., and I'm not sure I want to do that. I don't want to go back into film business. And that's when I come over to Kathy's shop, and she's got this little shop, and her father's here, and it's just sort of like quaint. And so I tell these stories about driving the Bronco across the country. And she said, you mean the Bronco that's parked out back behind the store? And I went, what? And I went out, and sure enough, it was the same car. And she said, yeah, Gee, you know, Brenda's boyfriend just opened up a handmade dress shop for you know the very well-to-do women in the neighborhood it's a very high-end neighborhood and i went out and i looked and it was the car and i was speechless so he like, drove so he drove it back no he didn't they hired somebody they yeah, don't I, yeah but they, so hired somebody but his his shop was in the same neighborhood as kathy's store. two doors down two doors yeah. down okay okay so that's that was an easy one. Um, it meant that you had to stay around Kathy sometime. Right. So so when I come back in, I'm speechless for the first time in my life. And and she said, Well, it looks like you're where you're supposed to be. Yeah. And you said that, Kathy? Yeah. 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 Looks like you so you wanted him there, I would also guess. Yeah, no. <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> she was just being objective about what the coincidence meant. Okay, that's good. Long life in store for you. <laughs> yeah, Chinese fortune cookie. I actually got that one. Long life in store for you. <laughs> <laughs> well, that brings us full circle to Kathy's store, which then got us out to Bali and the drummers and the and bought and, and Bruce Springsteen's uh, denim jacket that got this thing rolling. But even before that, the 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 widow and the orphan got you walking into the Burbank studios uh, where you happened to run into the boss, the Bruce Springsteen, that allowed this whole thing to start going. And the there's a lot of little funny details in this but what i extract is the skeleton part of that where there are several transformative coincidences that got you to where you are now now we're we're, we're getting maybe about 15 or 20 minutes left in this and i want to make sure that um we get to synchronicity and drumming because yeah. that is so important for us to be able to hear that's a big reason why you're here 
Um, I, I, by the way, I was in the same movie that you were. What is synchronicity? I, I was interviewed in that thing too. Yeah. Uh, so that's where there's I, a story about that movie that's synchronistic. I think you just t- you told me, but we can. The, the came, it came out around the same time as something else did. Yeah. But let's leave that because I and we can come back to that if we need to. What you probably have had lots of coincidences in your life, but let's go to how you help people get in the flow with hitting the right rhythm that gets them where things start happening smoothly. Yeah. Now, rhythm has an effect on our psychology and our physiology. And I've always been a student of how rhythm affects people. And as a, as a drummer, I sit back in the clubs and watch people dance or not dance. And so tempo is really important. So when I left the film business, I also left my psychotherapist, who Laura Marr was paying for. Jungian therapist, very good. But it wasn't hitting my issues. I wasn't getting any resolution. I got a vocabulary, which was very useful. And one day the, the therapist says, well, we're not going to meet for a while because I'm going to, to the Reggae Sunsplash in Jamaica. I said, okay, that's it. That's the last I'm going to see of you. Because I should be in the Reggae Sunsplash in Jamaica. I should be playing. So I realized that i am just got to do this on my own. There was no approved psychotherapeutic process that I felt comfortable with that was resolving anything for me. I was getting a good vocabulary, a good education. That's when I realized that the drum was something that they did not understand. None of the therapists that I was seeing were drummers. This was in 1983. So that's when I started to say, there's something about the drum that's connecting us to our good instincts and uh, and opportunities. And it has to do with alignment of ourselves with universal energies that have always existed, that have no value judgment, no right or wrong. Now let's let's just let's just as I go with your drumming because I want to talk with your drumming as best as I can. Sure. With the drumming because I I really like hearing it. I like the rhythms that you're getting going. And what we're trying to say is the drummer that the drum beat when done right helps us align with the energy that's there. Yeah. Always been there. And like with the Grateful Dead, they start playing and it's as if they've been playing. And that phenomenon was the style of music that I could relate to. Plus... I was always amazed how Jerry Garcia just kept having the same kind of something even with each, each song had something the same in it. Yeah, yeah. It's all the same. <laughs> I, you know, I heard them a lot. And I, I bet you them. did. <laughs> so what I was being drawn to was to codify for our cultural mix this ability to use rhythm to connect to the, the more profound powers that are so deep in our uh, life expect, experience that we don't even know they exist. You go to other cultures, yes, they know right away. They knew in Bali that I was a drummer like less than a minute. So 
And the rhythm that I was playing in Bali was uh, a, a crusader rhythm. It's also Wawan Ko in Cuba, the, the sacred rumba rhythms. One, two, three, four, five, six. So I've, I've got this academic experience as a drummer, but there was this other level that I entrained psychologically and psychically entrained in order to feel connected to the universe in a way where the universe recognizes and respects what I'm doing. And, and it comes forward in a, in a strange way and says, oh, what can I do for you? And then you create a conversation with the universe that says, this is what I need. This is what I want. But there's no anxiety connected to it. Most people do the creative uh, affirmations without the drum, but they generate anxiety, first of all, because they speed up. So the first thing I started to teach was don't speed up. S you know, just stay relaxed, which I had to learn how to do that as a, as a blues drummer, as a rhythm and blues drummer, you know. Otis Redding, uh, all those people in, in Georgia, they knew how to stay in the pocket, in the groove. And there was really no place else in the country where you could experience that. So I was immersed in that. Southern rock was being born. And I, it was gospel truth for me. So, and that's why I have a tambourine on my foot. You can sort of see that. And I I went back and I dredged up these grooves without any show business. Simple. Because I wanted people to be able to f hit, hit these grooves themselves. By themselves, with their friends. I don't care if you buy my records or not. This is more important. So this rhythm is the same heartbeat rhythm as a human. six one two three four five six one so as i started to show people these rhythms it was with the intention first of all of just to get you down off your anxiety level because everybody is in la you know and i said this is too easy people were like you know getting it but i said it's too easy so i took it on the road and i wrote some books you know let the goddess dance uh drumming the spirit to life and and i and i got up my tour together because I knew how to do that. You know, I I went to Illinois, I went to Kansas, I went to Florida. I drummed with a thousand Dominican nuns in Michigan at the mother house of the Dominican order. And I worked I drummed in a missile silo under the ground in Topeka, Kansas with 40 and every month people please come back, please come back. Because this was before drumming groups were happening. So I knew I was way ahead of the curve. And I treated it like, okay, whoever books me first, that's where I go. It's like the old days in the pop music. It's like if you have a hit in Des Moines, Iowa, that's where you go. You start your tour there. So it was a mystery to me how the universe was connecting me to where I needed to be, and where people needed me. Not me, but the process. So, uh, and then... The uh, the company, Remo, they came in and they wanted me to, you know, promote their, their fiberglass djembes. And I said, no, I don't, you know, those drums suck. Sorry. <laughs> I said, no. So I realized I was like 
putting myself outside the, the marketplace by insisting on doing these drums. These drums are blessed. They're from our friends in Ghana. They carved my Helm Tone logo on the drums. They're totally believers in what we're doing because it's it relates to their culture. And I don't have to pretend to be African. It's just I'm who I am. So people were coming back to me, giving me feedback. It's like, I, after we drummed, I got what I needed. And it was various things, like uh, a new mate, a new car, new house, new job. Uh, and these are specific. I said, get specific. You want the universe to help you out? Get specific. So uh, a psychotherapist started sending their patients to us. And the first time I walked in this room, I said, this is a great drum room because it's like a recording studio drum booth. The floor's hollow, about two feet. So it's very conducive to like this deep, resonant sensation. So the psychotherapist sent several patients in. And one of them, she, pretty woman, but big, you know, and uh, we talked, you know, and she's got a drum and I've got a drum. And, uh, She's been, up, you know, diagnosed with obsessive compulsive disorder. She hasn't been out of her apartment in seven years. Had no social life. We're talking, and I went, "Okay, here it is. You want to say it with me? I am beautiful." And she got all red, you know. I am beautiful, and I'm keeping the the groove way back in the pocket. Am beautiful. I learned that from Otis Redding, you know. I am beautiful. beautiful. Yeah. So we drummed and I slowed it down. Am beautiful, which is unheard of in a drumming group, right? I am beautiful. And she stayed with it. You know, she was eager and willing. Am beautiful. And one more. I beautiful now she's she's in a trance and she's soaking in this affirmation she says well it kind of feels like it's stuck here you know and it's, it's close went, well let's talk some more so the more she talked i went oh okay this is we're gonna you know upgrade it i am desirable and she just got red you know like just could not say that i said it's just words. It's just a drum. What have you got to lose? Okay, so she did. I am desirable. And then we slowed it down, right? All the way down. I am desirable. And this takes 20 minutes sometimes. Depends. I am desirable. I am desirable. So that goes deep into the limbic system and it becomes part of the belief system because rhythm is how our belief system usually gets created. You know, I mean, that's the theory. That's, that, that's so important. Uh, I, as I was going along with you uh, and getting deep in the groove, which of course I love saying groovy from the seventies, but I didn't know what, really being in the groove was yeah grooving We're, we hear that grooving on a sunday afternoon you hear that sound but you just took us into the groove and as you slowed it down 
you you pulled us deeper into the groove, down into the sitting on the dock of the bay, wasting <laughs> time. That's feeling way down in there. And there's yeah. something, we don't know what you said, limbic something other, I can think you're probably right, it bypasses the cortex and yeah. it's down into some place inside of you. So the words get carried along into the groove and that groove is where the transformation takes place deep down in there. And then you come out of the groove, in that trance, and then you're something different. Yeah. So this woman, Teresa, she emails me the next day. She says, if I had not been grounded and pumped up all at the same time, from the drumming session, I would not have said yes to my former boyfriend from the seventh grade, she's in her 30s, who called me out of the blue and asked me to go out. And I said yes. And she ended the email by saying, apparently, I'm fine just the way I am. Wow. So we were happy, hooray. Few months pass. They're getting married. We go to the wedding. It's a big country club in the valley. And she's at the reception. She's got a big white dress on. She's beautiful, big woman. And her court is around her. And the, and the, the band is in their blue tuxes. And her husband's on his knees. You are so, so beautiful. beautiful and she sees, us, she sees us at the next table. And she goes, I am desirable works for me so we drummed at their house and we cleared out the energy they've got a few kids they're still together well i'm going to stay with not the follow-up because sometimes coincidences don't lead to long-term relationships but they bring people together for a while sometimes it does go, but the idea that you could get her into the groove and she would go into the groove and she accepted going into the groove and was there in the groove and could be desirable, could be beautiful. Somehow that also gets the seventh grade boyfriend to call her the next day. Then we're talking magic here. Yeah. We're talking what I'm looking for, what I try to pick up as I try as I try to understand the variables that increase the likelihood of this sort of thing happening. And you are giving me another look at how that might happen. So the two rhythms that I use to show people how to manifest, we don't call it conjuring anymore. That was a, <laughs> that was a New Orleans term and it was it's become pejorative. It's a little bit, uh, yeah, overdone. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's so man yeah. manifesting, new age, we're manifesting. And you start to realize that time is a very flexible commodity. And uh, one psychotherapist, uh, she's a PhD in brain research at Tulane, uh, Dr. Zadina, she was having... Uh, she was freeze up in the middle of a lecture, holding the brain, because she was dealing with delayed stress from Katrina and other stuff. So we talked about her issues and her life, and we finally came up with, I am not a victim, okay? And we just slowed that down, not a victim. <laughs> 
in your five ten minutes. I am not a victim. Really slow, it goes in deep. I am not a victim. Now, as she was repeating this and hitting a drum with me, you don't have to have musical knowledge to do this. I realized that we were outside the linear time cause and effect because rhythm does that. When people play music or play the drum, time ceases to exist. I ask people, how long have we been drumming? They go, I don't know, because it's not important. So that was a concept that I could work with. I said, okay, we can go rhythmically into the past and change the past. I have never been a victim, which would fly in the face of any rational human being. Have never been a victim. But the, the malleability, the neuroplasticity of how the brain works is it will take a rhythmic affirmation. If you insist, <laughs> it'll go into the belief system on a deep level and it'll stay there. And we've done it for so long now, we've had a lot of, you know, anecdotal reports back saying, yes, it's still there. I have never been a victim. That's up on YouTube. And another one is like for anger, right? And now I am angry, right? I am angry. You slow this down. I am angry and you come all and you're hitting the drum i am angry and when you come all the way down it's ludicrous i am angry and so when dr zadina understood that when she said you're bypassing the amygdala you're 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 reprogram you're rewiring how people get angry so all of these possibilities started you know coming forward so i took it on the road you know la you know too easy i got to go out to the hinterlands and see if this really is valid so i'm in florida and a friend of mine i'm staying at his little compound and and i needed to have a vehicle i didn't have a vehicle down there i wasn't i wasn't a rock star so i couldn't just rent a car so uh, a woman who was coming to the groups you know, tried to help me find a van because I was putting a lot of drums in my mother's garage and down in Florida, and, and it, it just was getting too busy. So out of the blue, this woman says her neighbor, after we'd been looking for vans, said, we just got new SUVs, and we've got this great, you know, Dodge caravan, and it's in great shape. It's a few years older, but we just want to give it up to spirit. If somebody needs a car, this, you know, let them have it. And she said, I do know actually somebody who does need a car and it would be perfect. They gave me the, the, the pink slip to this beautiful Dodge Caravan for free. They said, it's a good Florida van, which I didn't realize meant it has no heater. And of course I drove it up through Michigan and froze my head off, you know, and, but I drove this van back to my friend's compound. And Jim sees me pulling into the parking lot, and he goes, did you drum on that? I said, well, yeah. He goes, 
You always do that. You drum on it, and then it happens. And that's where we're going to stop here, buddy, um, because I'd like to hear more, but we've got a, a time limit a bit of uh, that this conjuring or manifesting. <laughs> I call it now a uh, term thought forms, putting thought forms out there. And I think that's more accurate um, because you think it and then let it go. And the drumming lets you let it go. You just like have it in you and then you send it out there and you don't even know you sent it. You remember you sent it out there. It's just out there. And somehow then it comes back. Uh, I've done that with trying to help create a, a coincidence project. Uh, just thinking about it and hoping it may. But I thought about that more, but still I let a lot of it go. This letting go thing is really an important part of it. And I think the drumming looks like it helps you get into it deeply to energize it. And then you let it go and then it happens. It's a, it's a wonderful part of this whole thing, buddy. Thanks. You're welcome. That's slowing down the tempo that most people don't consider important. This is letting go. Is the letting go. What, as what, you slow down. What I'm trying to learn here from you is that it also has to do with my talking. That yeah. I tend to speed up when mm -hmm. I'm talking. And you're telling me quite clearly that when you speed it up, Dr. Coincidence, you are beginning to let people get chase people away because you're getting anxious. So when you've got something important to say, that's the time to slow it down. That's and right. Get, get into not just the groove, but deep into the groove. And yeah. then you're in the groove and you're really grooving. And then they come in there with you and they can hear you and be relaxed in that groove with you. Yeah, it's inviting. You're inviting people. You're inviting. To... You're inviting. And I, I learned that from B.B. King. You know, it's like you listen to his solos, just a few notes. He's never busy. He's never. He's just sitting there and just strumming on that thing and doing that thing. And that voice comes in and out. And you're just with him. And you're just with him. So, buddy, you're my buddy now. Okay. Thanks a lot, buddy. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you. Good luck with all of this. Thank you. Nice to meet you. <laughs> nice to meet you, Kathy. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Okay, see you soon. This psychosphere is our mental atmosphere Like a hologram of cosmic consciousness